Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Many of our friends and colleagues in the white collar justice community tell me that they are writing books about their experiences or that someone should make a movie about them, even me. So I contacted a few professionals I know in the movie and television production business and asked them what it takes to actually get the attention of a movie or TV series producer or director. And each of them were happy to come on the podcast to discuss it. We are calling this episode, Is Your Life a Movie? Joining us are Lydia B. Smith, Bethany Jones, and Will Nix, three movie and television producers who actually made justice-related films or TV shows, and they each provide their contact information for you to get in touch with them. So coming up is Your Life a Movie, The Producers, on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer, so I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. We have a very special podcast today. We're calling the producers... But really what we have are producers and directors and film industry and TV industry professionals, all of whom are friends of mine and all of whom have produced different forms of media uh, around criminal justice or justice themes. So the big question that I hear from everybody when they go through prison or they come through the criminal justice system is, is... uh, why don't they make a movie about me? Or how, how do I get a movie made about me? Or um, I want to write a book. And these three are really curators of how that happens, at least each in their own, um, in their own world. Um, and they're going to tell us what it takes to make a movie, what interests them, what interests the audience. Is it a surprise? Is there a formula? So they have uh, all kinds of industry um, background. So what we're going to do is go around. Each of them is going to introduce themselves for four or five minutes, then we'll get into conversation. And with us today, we have uh, Lydia Smith, Will Nix, and Bethany Jones. And very happy to have all three of you with us today. Um, why don't we start with uh, Lydia, then Bethany, and then Will, and introduce yourselves, and um, we'll take it from there. Okay. Well, hi, everybody, and thanks for having me, Jeff. Um, So my background really started in college. I, um, I was in a documentary class and there was a woman that came in to show a film on incest and child sexual abuse. And despite it being literally the worst subject in the world or, you know, um, it was actually one of the most inspiring, uplifting films I'd ever seen. And so I, asked her if I could work for her and um, I did an internship. Then she hired me out of college. And the motivation behind that was I saw how one film could change millions of lives because her film was called Breaking Silence. And it was really about breaking the cycle of incest and child sexual abuse because um, most women that were abused sexually end up marrying um, or hooking up with a man that will then abuse their children if they don't break the, si- break the cycle. And so I saw how powerful film was as an agent to 
uplift and inspire people. And so my career kind of went all over the place. I um, worked for several different documentary filmmakers um, back in the Bay Area. Then I moved to Spain for uh, approximately six years, worked in commercials mostly, um, then moved to L.A., um, and I moved into, um, the camera department. I was mostly in production before that and, um, was able to work in the camera department on a lot of big movies like Ed Wood and Matilda and Dangerous Minds. And, and, but all the while my, my true love was always documentaries and kind of social issue or, or things that would, would really have a positive impact in the world. And um, so I worked on usually about one documentary every couple of years. Um, a couple of the standouts um, was one was on the, um, for CNN Presents, it was on the Children's Peace Movement in Colombia. It was called Soldiers of Peace, a Children's Crusade. Um, another one I worked on was um, called Stand Up, which was a comedy camp at the Laugh Factory in Hollywood. Um, and they would bring kids from disadvantaged situations, you know, um, foster, foster homes or group homes. Um, and to be honest, I never really felt, um, like I could make a film. Like I was a really great producer. I was a really great, um, camera person, but you know, I, I guess I just didn't believe in my own potential. I'm not really sure, or it just felt too overwhelming, but, um, I did do one short film um, on my own called They're Just Kids, which was about uh, friendships between um, kids with special needs and, and typical kids. But it was a kind of a short movie and it, it um, didn't go too far. But then what happened for me is I went and walked the Camino de Santiago, which is a 500 mile pilgrimage in northern Spain, where you literally walk across a country. And as I was walking and people found out I was a filmmaker, they were like, oh, you should do a documentary on the Camino. And I was like, no, no, it's, you know, I, I did a short film before. It's too much work. It's too hard. And, but that little voice kept niggling at me. So um, when I got home, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And so I um, ended up doing a documentary on the Camino. Took me um, five plus years. <laughs> To make it and um, it did really well. Um, we were the number 12 doc in theaters in 2014 um, in the US and then number five in Australia and New Zealand um, in 2015 and had a really good um, broadcast on PBS and um, have a Rotten Tomatoes review of 90%. So I've been really pleased with how that went. And what I realized is what really inspires me the most or interests me the most is transformation, is people changing. Like what makes people change? How do they change? How do they? And when I say change, I really do mean transform because change is something that you can change and then change back. But transformation is a permanent change. And that's what really interests me. And after I finished uh, walking the Camino, there were a couple other films that sort of came and went and didn't, didn't get funding or, you know, didn't happen. And I was just sort of in transition. And a friend of mine um, teaches uh, theater at a prison. And he had a, a performance of a play about solitary confinement called The Bucket. And so I went to go support my friend. I mean, I, you know, 
didn't really have any <laughs> any particular interest in going to prison. I mean, I'd I'd been to prison once before with um, soldiers of peace, um, and it was kind of a youth facility, and it wasn't a maximum security prison. And it was a really interesting experience. Now that I look back on it, because I at first I was like, oh, no big deal. I'm I'm going into prison. And then they, they read you the riot act, um, which is, I mean, I'm sure most listeners know this, but it, which is literally, if there's a riot, you're on your own. So all of a sudden I was just like, oh my God, you know, like, and just in my head, outwardly, I seemed par- pretty calm, but I just was like kind of scanning who's going to hurt me, who's going to help me. And we went up to where the performance was going to be. And um, my friend took off. I was the only woman. Um, there was only five of us from the outside and I was the only woman and all these prisoners are milling about. There's like 30 prisoners and, or adults in custody. Um, and anyway, I was kind of, my friend said, Oh, here, talk to Terrence. And I, I started talking to Terrence. I'm like, okay, he's, you know, if there was a riot, he'd hide me in the blue broom closet. And then, um, then the play happened. And again, there's like, at this point, there's like 50 prisoners and the play is happening, no guards in sight. And, um, and I was just blown away. It was an incredible play. It was a series of monologues. It ended up winning um, the first prize in the pen awards, prison pen awards. And afterwards um, there was one particular performer that just blew me away. I mean, it was like, spoken word poetry. His performance was just amazing. And afterwards I started talking to him and all of a sudden my whole body relaxed and I was like, I'm safe now. And I just got, I just knew that I knew that I knew that this man would put his life down for me if anybody tried to hurt me or if anything happened. And I was like, wow, how interesting is that? The safest I've probably ever felt is with a man that's in prison. Like this guy just exuded this. And so anyway, it was just an extraordinary experience. And I, there was a guy there that was planning on doing a documentary about the, the, um, the theater program. And I said, I'm in, it was just an intuitive and what I want to bring. And my film is still in production. It's called blooming where planted a hope for um, hope, hope in humanity, a search for hope in humanity behind bars. And, um, it's really about the transformation of a group of prisoners. Um, and then there's this one that's kind of the, the leader of the restorative justice program and, um, who's quite extraordinary as a real poet and very eloquent. And what I saw was the, the, the switch that I had from you know, one, not caring about guys behind bars, kind of having this like attitude of like, well, you know, they're getting what they deserve. Kind of, I mean, I just didn't think much about it, but I think that's what I thought. And, and then as I went and saw this play and saw these extraordinary men doing this performance and bearing their souls, and I was so moved by them. And I just realized I wanted to make a film that could kind of help viewers have the same transition I did to view people on the inside. Like there's a huge range of people. There's extraordinarily talented, wonderful, inspiring people. 
as much as there's guys that probably shouldn't leave ever. But I just never thought about the guys. I mean, most media really focuses on the dangerous and the, the evil and um, the Hannibal Lecters of the world. Um, and so I wanted to do something different and really show the transition, the transformation that happens, that can happen inside. And um, so we started production in January and then we got shut down with COVID in March. <laughs> Um, but uh, one of our lead characters is going through some legal things. So we're kind of following his legal um, proceedings and I've been doing Zoom interviews, but we're still in the, in the process. And what's the most interesting is how much I miss the guys because um, I used to go there every week and I, it's just, there's something really mm, fulfilling about being around a, gr a group of men that are so dedicated to their transformation and to being better people. Thank you, Lydia. That was beautiful. So Bethany, you, you have a lot of experience uh, dealing with the criminal justice system and putting it on, uh, on camera. So uh, why, don't, why don't you give us some background? Um, I do. Thank you so much. Um, so I was born and raised in the UK and France. I'm a dually. Um, I'm meaning I'm half British, half American, got both passports. Um, and I went to the university of Wales and I thought that I wanted to be a journalist and do print journalism for Vogue, Vanity Fair. I wanted to do big human interest pieces. And I'd come back to Los Angeles, where my family was at the time, uh, for the holidays. And I ran into an old high school teacher, and she said, my son's working on this show called Prison Break. I didn't know anything about it. And she said, I think you'd be really good in TV. And I was like, uh, I kind of want to be a writer and for journalism. I want to go to grad school, do journalism. And she said, just write to my son and maybe he can get you an internship. So I wrote to him and I said, hi, my name's Bethany. I'm, you know, 19 years old, 20 years old. Um, can I intern for you? And I didn't hear anything, no response. And I go back to Wales and one day I'm sitting on a bus and the rain is just torrential. It's bucketing down. And I see on my phone an LA number comes up and I think it's got to be a friend from high school. And I answer the call and the voice comes on and says, um, Bethany, this is Zach from 20th Century Fox. I'm so sorry it's taken me so long to get back to you. He said, I actually can offer you a full salaried position on prison break. And I was like, okay, all right. Um, and he said, let's set a time to, to speak and we'll figure out the details. So I graduated from university on a Monday. I flew back to Los Angeles and Tuesday at 8 a.m. I was on the Fox lot working for, you know, working on prison break. And I did research for the writers and producers, and I, you know, researched a lot about um, South American, Central American prison systems um, and the prisons uh, there. 
And then the recession and writer strike happened back to back. And I was, you know, just working, making ends meet, doing film research. And a friend called me and she said, I can offer you a position for six weeks on a documentary. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to be with like David Attenborough and Penguins. I mean, it's a documentary, right? So I immediately took the job. And then I called her and I said, wait, what's the subject matter? And she said, it's about children that commit homicide. And I said, Dana, why would you think I'm good at this? And she said, you're a really good listener. And she said, when you reach out to people, that's what they want. They want a good listener. And six weeks turned into two months, turned into three months, turned into six months. And then... um, Two more Discovery shows picked me up. Then I did my first CNN series um, with the former head of the Intelligence Committee. And from there, I, it was just show after show after show. And on my first CNN series, we got this note back saying that they wanted to know who the confidential informant is for this case, this arms dealing case. So I was like, all right. And I wrote to Saddam Hussein's weapon supplier. And I was like, hey, who was your friend? <laughs> like, it was like, you, you know, you're so far in production. You're tired. You're beat down. You're weary. And he wrote back and he was like, why aren't you doing my story? My story's much more interesting. By the way, here's like the guy. And so... It, we ended up not needing the guy's name because obviously we can't put a confidential informant. But um, when all this transpired, one of my colleagues said, well, aren't you just a little inmate whisperer? And I started to think about that. And I started to really think about, you know, what the justice system is, what the prison system is, what these institutions are and what they mean to us. Um, And after that show, I went to conduct my first prison interview. And as I was walking in, there was this woman and she's just like chatting away and, you know, real chatty Kathy talking about her husband and she'd worked at USC. And it was kind of what I call a God moment, like where I knew I was doing the right thing and the interview was going to be good. Because I said, oh, that's funny. My grandpa worked at USC. You know, he was a dean there. And she was like, well, who's your grandpa? And suddenly I was like, I don't want to tell you who my grandfather was. Like, you know, that seems really personal. So I told her, I told her, you know, um, it's Bob Jones. Like he worked on Gilligan's Island and created the test for the DGA and the SATs. Like he was a test maker. And she goes, Bob Jones, she said, in the math department? I said, yeah. She goes, he was the nicest man. And I'd never had that kind of intersection of my my own world with this world collide like that. And it kind of took my breath away a little bit because I didn't know my grandfather growing up because he passed away when I was very young and I lived in the UK. And, um, I went in, conducted this interview with a guy. He could have gone to my high school, you know, he could have been in class with me. And I started to wonder, are men and women 
who are touched by the justice system just like me? Do they have hopes and dreams like I do? Do they have, you know, goals, ambitions? And I realize that we're not that far apart. So, yeah. So that was kind of what launched me into uh, the justice system and justice-related programming, which I've done for almost my entire career, if you include prison break. So, yeah. Thanks, Beth. I'm sure we'll get a chance to discuss uh, your some of your current projects, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Will, um, I saved you for last, mostly because I've known you the longest. Um, uh, Will and I have been great friends for uh, almost 20 years um, since uh, we both lived in Greenwich. Um, and then Will left us and moved to Tinseltown. So, uh, Will, why don't you introduce yourself and give some background because uh, you've done a lot of things. Well, first of all, I've been fascinated to listen to Lydia and Bethany, and thank you for uh, having me uh, uh, here today. Uh, it's uh, my uh, path, I guess, with as it relates to prisons and the criminal justice system is both somewhat more linear and structured and, and not at the same time. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, in sort of reflecting in preparation for today, um, I sort of looked back and thought of uh, where did I get into the path that I'm on right now? And I think what one of the things was that uh, uh, I grew up in a uh, suburb of Chicago, and the, the church I went to, the Methodist Church, was founded by John Wesley, who was an eight, uh, 18th century theologian, and uh, service was very, very much uh, part of uh, embedded uh, in that. And I think it probably is in, in all religions, but it was particularly in the forefront, service to the poor. And prison reform and uh, the abolition of slavery were also very much in the forefront of the, the tenets of that religion. Uh, but I also grew up in a, a family where my mother was an English teacher and literature and storytelling and whatever was imbued from us, you know, like, like, practically from birth. Uh, and so I think I always related to reading great stories, short stories, novels, and, and so I got a little older in uh, movies and television programs and just uh, d telling stories of one sort or another. And the ones that always resonated with me most were ones that had some um, message to them, had something that was more uplifting. I mean, you know, I love a great Jason Bourne movie and sort of escape business type of things. I mean, I'm very eclectic that way. But the ones that I think really stick with me um, are the ones that... that uh, do what we call putting the spinach in with the popcorn that, that uh, you, you have a, you, you enjoy it as entertainment, but you also, uh, there's more to it that uh, you take away and that you remember uh, over time. Uh, and uh, so, you know, fast forward a number of years doing a lot of it. You know, I was an English major, took a lot of film courses or whatever. When I graduated uh, from college at Georgetown, I, I taught uh, English and a uh, little film uh, course in the DC public schools, uh, and uh, and I did that for several years, and then I, I pivoted and I went to work as a law clerk at the National Prison Project of the ACLU, uh, which is probably my first experience in actually dealing with uh, you know people who were incarcerated uh, and visited uh, you know 
uh, many different prisons and jails uh, because we were doing civil rights type cases, human rights type cases. So everything from dietary restrictions, the right of Muslims to wear uh, uh, their uh, head uh, 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 caps and also uh, uh, things like access to prison libraries and whatever uh, as well. And so uh, I went to both local jails and maximum prisons like Lewisburg and near where I visited you, Jeff, as a matter of fact, uh, in, in, over the years. So uh, I, I came to understand some of, um, uh, of what uh, both Bethany and Lydia were talking about in terms of relating to the actual people uh, in prisons and, and what their stories were. And, and, you know, and we would bring civil rights lawsuits uh, uh, to try and uh, basically uh, protect the human rights uh, of people in prison. So we weren't doing habeas corpus or other things like that, uh, but we, uh, we were you know, basically uh, constitutional and human rights of people incarcerated. So having done that for several years, I went to law school. Uh, and uh, in the course of law school, I learned that you, there was this thing called entertainment law, uh, where I could marry my interest in storytelling with you know, the practice of law and actually earn a living uh, doing it at the same time. And I thought, oh, Eureka. Uh, and uh, I did that for uh, you know the, the better part of thirty years, uh, and I got to a point in time where I said I can continue doing this. I was living, as, as you mentioned, comfortably in Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, and had a very nice job at Thirty Rockefeller Plaza. And you know there was no reason, from a comfort point of view, not to just stick with that and kind of ride that through the retirement. Uh, but I I decided I would sort of jump out of a plane without a parachute and, and become a producer. And that's what led to my moving west. So uh, a lot of what I'm focused on now uh, is really pretty much continuation of that uh, line, but in a different way. I'm trying to uh, work on uh, storytelling that has an impact. So one of the, there are two sort of threads that I'm working on right now with the Producers Guild of America uh, with some colleagues, we formed a, a social impact entertainment task force. We've been doing a whole series of different uh, uh, workshops and events for producers and writers and directors that sort of uh, give them the tools and the platform to learn more about uh, how to produce those kinds of movies. We just did one over the weekend where we had uh, Norman and uh, Lynn Lear, uh, as well as uh, Jeff Rolowski, who uh, directed The uh, Social Dilemma. And we were focused on climate change and storytelling about climate change. And, and, and it, uh, the other group uh, uh, I'm involved with that we just launched at the end of uh, August uh, is called the Social uh, Impact uh, Entertainment Society uh, and the, or the SIE Society. And you can find it at siesociety.org. Uh, and uh, we, basically what we're trying to do is create a platform for people who are interested in that type of storytelling uh, to come together, uh, sort of break down silos and whatever, and kind of open up the dialogue, create a community for people to uh, get to uh, network with one another and uh, learn, uh, provide resources to, to each other and whatever. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of the, the trajectory I'm on right now. And certainly things like prison reform and, and the stories that are about prisons or prisoners you know, fit right into uh, Right within the aperture of what we're focused upon. Thank you, and uh, and just uh, full disclosure: um, when uh, after I got arrested and my uh, ex-wife kicked me out, <clears throat> Will put me up in his uh, house 
in Greenwich for, um, for about six months before he moved west. And for those of you um, who are um, homeless, um, Greenwich, Connecticut is a very good place to be if, if, you, need to, uh, if you need to find a sofa or a bed to, bed to camp out on for, uh, for six months or so. And Will was very, very kind. And then uh, Will and I and his uh, chocolate lab got in his uh, SUV and drove from Greenwich to Austin, Texas. And that's a whole story unto itself. Uh, um, it, in my mind, it's worthy of a movie, but I, I, I have no idea what that really means. So thank you all for your, uh, your intros. Um, so fascinating. Um, so, so here's the topic, really. So for everyone that, um, who goes to prison, their information is really anecdotal or their, or their lives are touched by the criminal justice system. Um, what makes something interesting to you? How does it touch you? How does something come to you? Um, how does it resonate with you or not? How does it, how do you figure out if it's fundable? How, what, what, um, I can't even tell you how almost everybody, and I deal with hundreds and hundreds of people in the criminal justice system. Everybody's got a book. Everybody's got a movie. So um, I'm hoping to get a dialogue going between the three of you or the four of us to discuss what that really means and, and um, what captures your imagination enough to even take a meeting with someone. What, what do you need to see? Um, someone want to jump in there and, and, and take that? I'll let Lydia and Will start because my every show I've done has been funded by a network. Like I've never like had to get funding for a project. So I'll let them start with that. Mm -hmm. Lucky you, Bethany. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've, I've worked on, on shows with, you know, like CNN, et cetera, but it's not easy. <laughs> um, I guess I'll say, I mean, for me, it's, it's really kind of an intuitive thing. Um, I mean, it's just something that hits me. Like I need to do this. Like I need to make a film about this. And, and I can't say, I mean, the, the funding part, um, it was extremely hard for me to fund my last film. Um, it took, you know, I ended up turning to private donors and with this one, I thought, oh, you know, prison reform and, you know, restorative justice and transformation of prisoners. I mean, there'll be lots of money, but it's extremely hard. Um, Tribeca, um, I, we applied to Tribeca. They had 700 applicants for four spots. Mm. And then par, uh, the IDA just had a focus on criminal justice films and they had 200 applicants for seven spots and we didn't get either one of those. So I don't make films. I don't think about like what's fundable because I think you have to be so passionate and so committed to what you're doing um, and if you don't have that, if you're just looking at the money or what's going to be easily funded, I'm not sure. I know, I, I don't think I would have the fuel to keep going. And what keeps me going on this project is the guys and these guys that are so committed to being better people, you know, um, Sterling, um, Cuneo is one of our characters. He has a blog, um, sterlingcuneo.com, I think it is. And his story is just amazing. I mean, he murdered essentially two people when he was 16 and he has dissected step by step 
what took him to taking responsibility for his crime and deciding to change and then has been able to really dissect what's taken him to that other side. And so I think to answer your question, Jeff, that's part of it is someone, I think everybody's story is worthy of a book or a movie, but who really understands their story and under can tell it, um, understands all the different levels and nuances. Olivia, in a way you're a folk hero of our white collar support group. And I, I, I've, never t- I've never told you this. Why is but, that? But, but we have one of our, one of our, our members um, who's now a, uh, owns a um, recovery center, a part owner of a recovery center, and a, a brilliant, brilliant guy. But he uh, was out one night and he, um, and he uh, drank and got into a car accident and someone got killed. So he served uh, a little over seven years in a state prison, hard time. Mm-hmm. And he came out committed to change and to, um, he's now, um, he, he's now uh, um, in school for his doctorate. Uh, one of my best friends, a beautiful, beautiful man, but he walked the Camino. Oh. So Every once in a while on our support group, he'll come back to it because it was kind of a magical, mystical experience for him. Yeah. And then, of course, um, all the rest of us just get to imagine because it's the kind of thing where if you're in prison and you're walking circles around the track, that's so far away from what your actual experience is. But yet, internally, mentally, you have to allow yourself to go there. So I saw your movie, but I didn't even know it was you. <laughs> and, and so, of course, I contacted him and told him that you're going to be one of the guests. And, uh, you know, he's super interested now. But there's a transformative documentary that really has on-the-ground effects. It moved people. It moved me. So do you know that while you're doing it? Do you... Do you do you do you get a sense of the majesty and and how people are going to connect to it spiritually somewhere down the line five years later? Well, you know, I do things. I have a very strong spiritual background. I became licensed as a spiritual practitioner um, through Reverend Michael Beckwith at the Agape Center, um, which Will might know. It's in LA, um, and. I really, I start my films backwards. I start thinking about how do I want my audience to feel after they've seen the film? And so with the Camino, I wanted the watching the film to be like having a little mini Camino, just watching the film. Mm -hmm. Because many people, you know, aren't going to go off to Spain. Like the Camino is not for everyone. It is who it's for a lot of people. And so the same thing with, blooming where planted is I want the the viewers to have that same experience I did my transformation of like wow there's amazing guys in prison there are like Mm -hmm. I'm so inspired by these people and oh my god they have to pay you know 17 dollars for a video call I want our audiences to be outraged by you know our prison system how it's it's so racially unjust and 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 how our prisoners are treated 
Um, I mean, I'm not going to be focusing on that. There's going to be, um, but it's really about the transformation that these guys have done in, in spite of all the obstacles. So I talk about the, this film is sort of the other side of the coin of the Camino. The Camino is, you know, it's about transformation and you have all these wonderful people helping you along the way and these hospitaleros and everybody's like, oh, here's an apple. Oh, can I like, you know, rub your feet and treat your blisters. You don't have to pay me. And prison to me, you know, it's the other side of the coin where, you know, you're getting dragged down. You make a couple steps up and instead of people supporting you, you have racist, ignorant correctional officers. You have mentally ill prisoners. There's like the threat of violence so often. And so to me, it's even that much more inspiring to see the, this transfer, transformation happen in spite of all those circumstances. Go ahead. One of the things, and I know I haven't yet funded, uh, you know, a passion project like, you know, William and or Bill and Lydia. Um, but every project or show I start with, there's a thesis and a pathos that I have to find and identify before I go in as a storyteller. And you know, whether that is taking a look at it from an investigation, from the lens of how this affected a community, how this, like, how did this happen? How is this preventable? How, like, whatever the question or thesis is, like, was this homicide justifiable? Sometimes that's a question we have to ask ourselves, you know? Like, you know, you take a look at cases like Alexis Martin and Santoya Brown, where they killed someone who sex trafficked them and you you, you you kind of understand how someone got there right you kind of you're like oh okay I, I I can see why why they did that and I think everyone has a story to tell it's just not always the story they think and I think that's really important when it comes to them wanting to write a book or wanting to have a project made because you know, every, uh, there's only 24 hours in a day. There's only so much time people can, can consume content and whatever content you watch, you listen to, you absorb, you actually invite into your home and into your life. So, you know, like you invited the Camino into your home because it interested you. So what those individuals if they're like I really want to write a book or I really want to do this they have to think about who that audience is who are they catering to or is it just they never had their story told and they feel they need to to say it that's what I would say as a storyteller you I, know and I, uh, I piggyback on that a little bit and say um, that I I'm sort of uh, again reflecting uh, on today and thinking a little bit about the kind of movies that get made about prison or people who are in prison, after prison, whatever, and, you know, everything from, uh, uh, you know, looking at it thematically, I think you, you do start, it always is story, it's about characters, that's at the heart of it all, uh, but then you have to make some practical decisions, and maybe I can talk a little bit about some of that. So, I, I was looking like, 
at the kind of movies that have been successful about prisons, you, you know, there are the, the stories about breaking out of prison, like The Great Escape or The Shawshank or Gem, uh, Redemption or Prison Break itself uh, uh, and uh, or Cool Hand Luke uh, or, you know, the conflicts in, within prison with corrupt, uh, you know, people running prisons like The Longest Yard or pe people doing time like Birdman of Alcatraz, the, you know, the Bird Lancaster movie and uh, story of Robert Stroud or uh, or then you know, in, in other areas, uh, you know, in, in the uh, uh, non-fiction area, like 13th or the farm, where you're looking specifically at the conditions in the, in the prison and what, what led people to be there and how they're treated and what that means for us uh, reflects upon us as a society. Uh, or Capital Punishment, uh, Long Green Mile, The Life of David Gale. Um, one of the things actually that really uh, hit me very early on was a uh, Robert Redford movie called Brubaker where he's this uh, progressive type of guy wants to change the system. And, you know, you know, spoiler alert, by the end of the, the movie, you know, he, he makes certain uh, uh, character decisions that he's going to put his career aside to expose the fact that they've been murdering and burying people and in, in, uh, in, uh, in, in burying them out in the field without the unmarked gravestones and whatever. Uh, uh, and, you know, there, and now there, there are all the, you know, a series of, of, of things about, uh, uh, unjust conviction and reversal of convictions, uh, just mercy uh, about Brian Stevenson and clemency about Anthony Woods or conviction, the story of Kenneth Waters and his sister uh, Betty Ann, who actually went to law school in order to get the tools to get him released from an unjust conviction about that. So thematically, I think w one of the things I think that uh, you start out with, uh, Jeff, with the idea about people telling their stories, I, I, I would maybe push back a little bit and say, well, maybe it's not all about you. Really, you need to talk about the people around you and less about your own personal journey, which may or may not uh, resonate with an audience that is going to allow a producer and all of the things that are necessary to get something uh, done to be actually produced. Uh, and if you look at that from an audience point of view and who, what stories are going to resonate with people out in the world, I think that that's a better lens to put on it. The, the, the other uh, two other things I just wanted to touch on that are sort of practical, but I think relevant here. One is choosing what kind of uh, storytelling medium you want to choose. I mean, there are documentaries, uh, there's film, there's TV, there's streaming, uh, there's theater, uh, there are online platforms. There are a number of ways uh, that where, you know, particularly the, the, the means of production, if you will, uh, you know, online. Uh, have never been more accessible. Uh, we're also flooded with content as a result of that. So getting outside of the noise and the chatter uh, is one of the big challenges for that. But choosing what's the best way to tell that story? You know, is it a nonfiction or is it fiction? And in what medium? Those are the kind of things I think, you, you know, and, uh, producers and storytellers, uh, you know, particularly people who have to raise money and convince investors and networks or studios and distributors and whatever to get, get you know, actually release what you produce. Th those are the kind of things that we're all looking at and saying, well, uh, you know, how, how do I pitch this? How do I get backers who will actually enable this to get made? Um, and then there's one other thing I just wanted to touch on in, in the storytelling area, because I think uh, more and more attention is being paid to this. And with our social uh, impact uh, uh, entertainment society, we, we, we actually have a, uh, a person who's the head of impact measurement and assessment. 
and and she was with a, a company called Participant Media, which is pretty well known in the industry for yeah. doing socially minded, uh, 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 impact oriented type of uh, uh, projects. And uh, so, assessing whether you somehow make it all the way through this pipeline. You know, you come up with an idea, you write a script, you get all the actors, you get, you get everything that you need to do, you release it. Did we really move the needle? Uh, did we really have an impact? Uh, uh, because if you are, uh, it's not just about riling people up in the theater or, or in front of a television screen. It's how do you convert into action? People taking some qualitative or quantitative steps to, to take the motivation and the passion they received from, from the story they just uh, witnessed and participated in uh, and turn that into uh, to something real that actually uh, tries to affect positive change in the world. And th there are two, two things uh, that I just want to reference that I think might be interested to people uh, uh, listening to this. Uh, one is there's a group I've been on the um, advisory board for for a number of years called Journeys in Film, uh, and it's journeysinfilm.org. And uh, on point here with Just Mercy, uh, they are releasing at Thanksgiving a curriculum guide that will be made for, as all of their uh, guides are, they'll be made of, uh, available for free online to teachers, students, and anybody else uh, to be able to uh, sort of take, you know, watch a movie uh, and then talk about it, reflect upon it. No, don't just get sort of passionate for, you know, two hours and then move on to the next uh, thing in, in that uh, captures your attention, but really focus on, you know, what can I learn from it? How did I get to be there? What Lydia was saying before about, you know, incrementally watching the steps that led to the, the actual act. Uh, so Journeys in Film and, and this uh, Just Mercy, I think, uh, curriculum guide they're about to do, that, that's one example of, and you'll see there's a whole host of other free curriculum guides that are made available to download for anybody who wants to go online to their website to do that. The, the other is more uh, in the same vein, which is uh, Abby Disney in uh, her company, they uh, uh, released a documentary called The, uh, the Armor of Light. Uh, it was about gun control. And basically mm -hmm. they created a whole series of different uh, type of guides to support that film. And the idea was that, that they weren't trying to convert the converted. They weren't trying to preach to the choir. What they were doing instead was going uh, to, uh, to evangelicals, you know, right to life people and say, well, if you believe you know, in protecting the sanctity of life, then reasonable gun controls and, and whatever you know, to keep things, uh, guns out of the hands of people who are mentally ill or proven to be, be of uh, bad faith, uh, it's, it's inconsistent unless you, you align those two uh, avowed principles and interests. And so she created a whole series of support materials to go to community churches and ethical, religious, uh, spiritual, and other uh, institutions and, and, and support in a series of community screenings for that. Will so, you put that in the chat or will you email that to us? I'm really interested in learning more about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, armoroflightfilm.com. Okay. Uh, and the, the, the chat the chat won't um, come out on the um, okay on the podcast. So uh, uh, okay, got it. But but what I'll do is I, I actually put together some notes and, and I'll send them to all of you uh, as well, and you can use them as you wish. Uh, just as some background and reflections that I had leading into this. 
So in some, because uh, I'm rattling on a little bit here, and, and forgive me for that, I get very passionate about these things, uh, is that I think a, lo a lot of what we do uh, as, as uh, you know, storytellers, whatever medium we choose and whatever way we tell our stories, uh, you know, I think, uh, at least from my perspective, needs to be intentional uh, and needs to use these very powerful tools that we, I won't say we have it at our disposal because we have a lot of masters to please and people to pull in to get behind us and make it all work. But certainly the, 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 the zeitgeist in which we're involved in, or the ecosystem, uh, you know, we need, uh, I think, to use those with greater uh, uh, responsibility and and one final note on that, the, uh, the uh, Color of Change, working with a, another group uh, I'm involved with uh, called Hollywood Health and Society, did a, a, a recent uh, study earlier this year called, called Criminal Injustice. And they were talking about representation on the screen uh, and, and basically you know, taking minorities, whether uh, you know, uh, African-American, Latino, uh, Muslims, uh, whatever, and they're always the bad guys, you know, and the cops are always the good guys. And they did this study, uh, and and it came out just uh, slightly before the Black Lives Matter movement really took to the streets and and, and gained momentum uh, with so many people joining uh, in that. Uh, and th that study uh, and the force that came behind that, uh, as they really uh, looked analytically and statistically and how people were portrayed as criminals uh, it was one of the through lines that along with the Black Lives Matter movement that got the cop show off the air and there was another one as well the, the so-called reality shows. Life uh, PD. Yes exactly and 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 so that kind of intentionality and whatever is is really kind of the service that that I see being involved in in, in a reason uh, that I uh, am and want to continue being a producer is to be part of that uh, positive social change. And I think also, you know, you look at these cases, you look at these stories, and sometimes laws get named after these cases or these situations. You know, I think a lot of people, they love stories about, you know, the justice system and just mercy and wrongful convictions. But did do people know that there are 13 states that do not have to pay restitution to someone who's wrongfully convicted? That means that you can be in prison for a crime you did not commit for 10, 15, 20 years. And, oh, justice system spits you out and you have literally nothing. No social security, no retirement, no funding, nothing. And then conversely, on the other side, there are states that do have restitution. It doesn't incentivize the prosecution to revisit some of the cases that maybe their predecessors got wrong because they don't want to have to pay that money. And so it's just, you know, it's not just that it's a broken system. I say the system's like a sieve and people are just like falling through all the time. And, you know, people, again, going back to wrongful convictions, I have a friend that spent 16 years behind bars for a murder he didn't commit. And, you know, um, people are always appalled at the conditions he lived in. Well, they're appalled because he was wrongfully convicted. They're not appalled that there are other people living in that 
manner. You and know? That's, that's one thing I want to bring up that, that was pointed out to me that I think is so important is so frequently the conditions are so inhumane that the prisoners are focused and on, on the, their treatment and rebelling and being angry about that, that there's no space for them to reflect on what took them to prison in the first place. And, I, and, and here's a really good example that's, you know, timely. I don't know if you want to keep this um, evergreen, but the way that, that certain prison systems have handled COVID it's inc- it's incredible. If any, if schools had handled it the same way that some of the prisons have, where just moving people around that they know have the that they've tested positive or they're exhibiting symptoms, so now everyone on the yard is now infected or been exposed to it. If if that was a school, right? I'm in LA. If that was a school in Studio City, it would have made the news. It would have outraged people. We would have been like writing to LAUSD or whatever, but it's not. There are four men and women that are four or five hours away in these desert concrete blocks. They're far from out of sight, out of mind, you know? So, so, um, so all, the, all three of you, the, the one thing that's resonating for me in your conversations and in the conversations we had before this is the word trust because all three of you put things on big screens or out to a lot of people. But in order for that to happen, there had to be a moment of trust between you and a subject or the moment of, of where, where there was real connection so that you could find the, the kernel there, the thing that, is, is somehow you're going to be able to transfer to the ultimate listener or, or, or viewer mm-hmm. that, that somehow you, you're the channel of. And so, Bethany, it strikes me, for example, that you're involved in a lot of current TV shows on Oxygen and CNN and all. Um, and, um, but you just demonstrated knowledge of of, uh, of the inner workings of a prison system that why in the world would you know that? Why would you be, why would you care? You're sitting in Wales. Why, why would you know about that? And it's shocking to me. I have to know about it. Um, I lived it, but for you, you could be, you know, you could be on the golf course. You could be doing anything with your lives, but here it is. And the intimacy of that, of that, little moment that you share with somebody whose story you're telling, how is it that you know that that little tiny thing, that little piece of trust where they trust you, you trust them. How do you get to that? How do you know that that's happening? And then how somehow it will, it will translate to something down the line where someone's sitting in, in, in their sofa at home or they're sitting in a seat in a movie theater or whatever. And they feel that connection too. Well, you know, oh, go ahead, Bethany. I I think you have to be honest and transparent as a person. And I think uh, without being, this is a very broad stroke thing, but a lot of people in this industry are not the most honest and transparent. And um, I 
will joke with certain colleagues. I'll say, imagine like I've been treated better by inmates than by whatever executive or, you know, um, and that's, that's a little bit pejorative. That's a little bit of a, a stretch, but you know, um, I guess for me, trust and building that relationship with someone, it's like, I'm holding their heart in my hands and I'm not going to drop it. Mm. And my reputation is, you know, like, you know, Bill and Lydia can say if they don't make a, if their film doesn't make the money or it doesn't get the viewership, people are not going to be as incentivized to fund their next project. Right. Well, conversely for me, if I do a really bad job with an interview or I lie or I'm unethical, well, they're going to go tell their friend that when I go to reach out to them, Hey, you know, when Bethany did my interview, she wasn't stand up. And so funnily enough, this one lady who's incarcerated, um, here in, in California, she said, it's really funny, Bethany, people don't always love the end result, but they've said you're always the most honest producer they've ever worked with. And it's because the bottom line is something brought those women behind bars or those men or, you know, however they identify. And I can't just gloss over that. They might have to sit with their discomfort a little more before they reach what Lydia's described as the transformation, mm. you know? And that's honest storytelling. It's, you, I can't just be like, yeah, they're, they're a great person. That's a very one dimensional story. Like who's going to watch that? You know, people, people want to see the conflict, whether that's internal, whether that's with the justice system, whether that's with, you know, and you know, they, I think conflict builds trust because you see how you relate to that other person in a, in a challenging conversation. Olivia, you were going to say something. Yeah. Well, Will and I were talking before we started recording about, um, I forget Will, what, what you had a cute little saying of, you know, um, quick, what was it? Oh, too quick doesn't stick. Too quick doesn't stick. Yeah. Um, because what was, what's been interesting for, I've been completely touched by how these guys completely open up and trust me. And, and I think part of it is it's taken, it took me three and a half years to get permission to shoot. And so I was going down to the prison probably once or twice a month. I'd sit in on hospice meetings. I, I, um, different, there was a class on restorative justice I'd sit in on, um, all these different things. So the guys kind of got to know me and there were a couple in particular that I spent significant amount of time with. And so I think that that really made a difference, but I do agree. Like Bethany said, you know, it's the openness and transparency and, you know, why I'm doing this and I'm completely open about that. And I think that's important. Are you in California too? I know Bill and I are. I am right now, but I live in, in, um, in Oregon, in Portland. Oh, okay. So, um, are you more familiar with the California system or the, uh, Oregon, Oregon system? Oh, yeah. So, well, I'm going to ask you a very pointed question about trust because, because I know your story so well. And 
So you're this Midwestern guy, comes a New York lawyer, and you take an interest in um, Khalil Gibran and the Prophet's the second most read book in history. And you decide that you want to um, acquire the rights. I'm, I could be confusing this story completely. But somehow you gain the trust of the Gibran family for the rights to the prophet and to Khalil Gibran's um, story, his, his biography. How in the world... You must know that you have some kind of ability, whether to, to uh, um, in, within the duality of trusting and being trusted, you must know that or, or believe this is something that you can do. I mean, this doesn't just happen where you're going to get on a plane and fly to Lebanon. I mean, what, how, how is it that people trust you that intimately with something that's so personal and so valuable? Uh, big question. Uh, so it's a little bit like Lydia was saying, and it, uh, 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 back into it this way. Uh, the, uh, I teach, I've been teaching a course on negotiation and dispute resolution at uh, Pepperdine Strauss Institute for about a decade. Uh, and one of the very first things that I focus on in that course uh, is about relationships. And, and I could say that, you know, I think all of the world is relational. Uh, but in, in Hollywood, it's relational on steroids. Uh, and, uh, you know, as Bethany said, you, you know, it's one of these things where you, you can spend your lifetime building your reputation and you lose it very quickly if you do missteps. And we've seen a lot of things in the Me Too movement where people who were in very senior positions, you know, uh, all of a sudden you find out what was going on behind the curtain and, and whatever. Uh, so relationships, I think, are very critical to that. So in this instance, I had a, a long-standing relationship uh, with a, a lawyer named Walid Nasser, and he actually lived here in uh, L.A. Uh, I had originally uh, hired him for a program I was running for the Motion Picture Association, and, and uh, he trained in New York and then went uh, and was stationed in Rome, and he managed the Middle East for us. Uh, and Walid and I did become very close personal friends in addition to having a business relationship with one another. And... Uh, uh, basically, after the, uh, the Civil War had wound down, uh, he moved back to Beirut, uh, and he began to represent the Gibran National Committee of Lebanon. Uh, and he actually reached out to me and said, we've had some experiences with people in Hollywood and some people who seemed uh, that they were sort of amateurish, uh, and, but we've always wanted to tell, uh, uh, find a way to take the profit and turn it into a movie. Uh, and uh, you know, I was... I said, okay, and? And he said, and, and would you be interested in helping us to find the path to doing that? And I said, uh, really? I mean, this is 26 prose poems, you know, in a book that, yes, as, as you uh, said, it's uh, sold over 100 million copies. It's in, you know, probably at least that number of languages around the world. Uh, but I don't know how you turn that into a feature film. I mean, you know, certainly inspirational in, in that medium, but you know, uh, it's like what I was alluding to before is, uh, you know, how, how do you take something like that in one medium and translate it into a very different one? And so that was back in um, uh, 2007, I think, that that started. 
Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, that time I was actually moving from uh, Austin, Texas uh, to Malibu uh, and kind of resetting myself up in LA and starting, a, that's a whole other side story as well. But uh, it, I basically uh, started, some people approached me and we had some connections or whatever. And uh, it, it's a little bit like what I describe as the, you know, the last decade or so of my life was just sort of force gumping my way through it. <laughs> it's literally one step in front of another uh, and and trying to figure out and a lot of missteps and you know, getting the right people around the table and and whatever and and uh, and and figuring out and we started out thinking we were going to do a biography combined with the prophet uh, you know it's kind of a hybrid sort of movie uh, and ultimately decided we do it as an animation and we got a wonderful director Roger Allers uh, who had done, you know, The Lion King and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and a bunch of other things. And uh, we got Selma Hayek to come in, and she she had a whole backstory of her grandfather reading The Prophet to her uh, yeah. as a child, and that, that, that it always resonated with her. And then, you know, she, again, relationally, she started reaching out, and Roger reached out. So, you know, uh, uh, Selma reached out to Liam Neeson, who who actually knew the lines of The Prophet by heart, so when it came time to go to a recording studio and do the voiceover work for the animation, yeah, you know, he wasn't like reading from the script. I mean, Where can we see this? Well, it was on Netflix, uh, and it's uh, in, until the end of September. But uh, I, I'll make sure I can get uh, uh, how to find it to you. But yeah, oh uh, my goodness! Yeah, but, but basically, we wound up making an 84-minute animated feature film, and and which. Actually, not off topic with our discussion today, because Al Mustafa, who's the key character in this, uh, who's uh, uh, in, uh, portrayed by uh, Liam Neeson, he was a, a political prisoner in Lebanon, and he's supposedly going to be released, uh, and you know, for, by the uh, the Turks who are holding, who have had him in prison for seven years, uh, and and they sort of march him down to to the ship that's supposed to take him away, and I won't say more about it because it would spoil some of the plot points, but along the journey, uh, you know, from his imprisoned place out in the mountains uh, uh, of uh, Orphalese, uh, he uh, basically meets up with different villagers and whatever, and different things about, you know, different chapters of the uh, of the prophet are, are to, uh, Im embodied in these fantasy sort of uh, Fantasia-like sequences. So, uh, and, you know, one of the uh, things that I think it relates, again, just to personal motivation with this, that there's uh, uh, something that uh, uh, in one of them where, uh, on the subject of work uh, where uh, Gibran wrote, uh, work is love made visible. Uh, and that's embodied in the mm. storytelling of it as well. So uh, that, that was kind of, a, I, I believe, sort of a masterwork uh, in, in uh, that... Uh, basically took that relation, brought a lot of people together, as uh, often happens, and wound up, you know, coming out the other side of it and, and being released. Well, oh, we're, uh, we're starting to get into the, um, to the end of this, uh, this podcast. So what, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go around, and if each of you could um, just mention some takeaways you'd like the audience to hear from with the specific um, the specific part of the audience that you're speaking to people who've been through the justice system or they're currently in the justice system or their families and, and you represent, um, 
a, a, a vehicle, a way for them to tell their stories or potentially a way for them to tell their stories or stories like theirs. So wh- what's the takeaway that people can, can learn from and grow from here? And um, also give us your uh, contact information. So uh, Lydia, let's start with you and then we'll go to Bethany and then we'll go to Will. I think what comes to mind is to really start from the inside out, to start working on yourself and attracting, um, attracting to you rather than going out to look for things. It's really about, you know, working from within and then attracting things to you. Um, I mean, I think that's applicable for everything. Um, and everywhere. Um, and I, you know, I, hmm, I think, (laughs) um, I think that's the most that I can, I can say, because I think it's, you know, everybody does have a story. And I think like Will said, you know, there's so many different manifestations. Um, and you know, the, one of the characters in, in our film, you know, he, he's been working on his poetry, his writing, you know, his stuff, you know, he's been, and he's been working on it as a catharsis as, you know, um, for dealing, processing what's going on with him. Um, and for my contact information, you can um, reach me. Our website is CaminoDocumentary.org. And then you can reach me through that. Thank you, Lydia. Bethany. Um. I think one of the big takeaways um, that I have, I'll, I'll give you two. One is actually a passion project. I, I hope to get off the ground and I'll definitely be pinging um, you both to get ideas about how I can get funding and the like. Um, when I was on Declassified for CNN, they had wanted to do a piece on a domestic terrorist. And of course, everyone thinks of Ted Kaczynski and I am. Um, found a couple more and I reached out to this young man who was at the federal supermax, the um, Alcatraz of the Rockies. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to him and I just was like, Hey, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm on this show. We're somewhat interested. And he wrote back and he'd been raised in the white nationalist movement. And he was like, I don't, hold these beliefs anymore and I was kind of like okay here we go like Mm -hmm. and um we began a dialogue and he had he had these racist um ideologies that had been placed on him and while he was in prison he saw um a, a movie he saw Sidney Poitier And he was like, wow, this man is so talented. What if people that I hated are actually artists and talented? And what if my beliefs were wrong? Mm. And it really moved me because it's the power of story. It's the power of film. It's the power of art has the chance and has the opportunity to transform someone. And you know, I know it's a long shot, but if Sidney Poitier was listening, I would want him to know you made a film, you know, 40, 50 years ago, mm. and it changed the life of a young man who was so racist. He had hate tattoos on his face. 
and he just got out, you know, he was able to successfully argue. And this is a guy that was in with Kaczynski, Eric Robert Rudolph, the 9-11 bombers. And he is so committed to going and telling people about not falling down the same path that he did, you know? Um, and lastly, for one of my oxygen shows, the mother of a victim had reached out to me long after filming. And she said, um, I really want to send a letter to one of the defendants who'd killed her daughter. And I said, Oh, okay. You know, and I kind of didn't really expect her to follow through, but she called back a few more times. And, um, I said, send me the letter and I'll send it on to him. And it was so powerful for me to witness this moment of forgiveness and reconciliation on both their sides. It really, for me, it really helped me put grace and faith in motion. Um, you know, I could have just been like, eh, the show's done, whatever, like, you know, but I just, something told me, no, do this. It's, it's the right, it's the right thing to do. And she was like, I've wanted to do that for years. I never had the chance. And it just, you know, makes me be a little bit more intent, uh, intentional and mindful and considerate about what I do. You know, you can have a compelling story and tell it compassionately too. So how would people you, reach you, Bethany? They can reach me at um, Bethany at planzproduction.com. And uh, yeah, just shoot me an email if anyone needs to get hold of me. Wonderful. Well, so in listening, actually, uh, both Lydia and Bethany are inspiring me. I, I think a lot of this is, is about building empathy. And, and how do you build empathy through story and other means uh, good, that we all have at our disposal? Uh, and I, th I think, uh, uh, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, Jeff, in terms of, you know, why, it, uh, you know, in my approaching mid-70s, am I still doing this kind of work as opposed to buying a sailboat and sort of enjoying going out to Catalina Island or whatever. And, and I would, would say it comes back to what I talked about before in terms of sort of purpose-driven life type stuff uh, that, uh, uh, you know, I think the, the empathy part of it is uh, I, I, in my own life story, uh, you know, I spent a year, uh, a summer rather, uh, living in Barcelona, Spain. I was sort of embedded with a the family there. I worked in, uh, it, you know, I, I, I was probably a pretty inept clerk in a uh, Spanish uh, production uh, construction company, but I did, uh, you know, I did my best and, but I, I lived with that family and I got to know Spain and what it was like living in another culture and speaking another language all the time because none of them spoke English. Uh, and then uh, the summer after that, uh, I was with a group called Operation Crossroads Africa and we built a school in what was then called Alper Volta, now Burkina Faso. Uh, and so it's literally digging ditches in 120 degrees sun, but we were working with counterparts uh, from the school in which we were, uh, this French lycée we were living in there in a, uh, um, uh, a place called uh, Babu de Alassi. Uh, and I think those experiences influenced my 
uh, my feeling about internationalism, my feeling about just learning about other people and, and kind of walking the walk side by side with others uh, in a way that was way out of my frame of reference uh, from growing up in, in a, you know, a very privileged suburb of Chicago. Uh, and and I think that stuck with me, and you know it's it's like it can't quit me, uh, and and so I, I, I I'm certain that's sort of with me, and I think that that that's sort of you know the the path I will probably remain on as long as I'm uh, physically and mentally able to do this is because of that and empathy, uh, and empathy building and learning uh, others' perspectives, uh, you know I think is is one of the critical things, and particularly in today's divided. Uh, world of politics. I think, uh, you know, that influences everything that we're doing now. And, and if we as storytellers can play a role in changing that story, uh, you know, I, I think that that would be one of the greatest things we can do. So how, how you reach me, uh, I've got a website called creativeprojectsgroup.com and all my contact information and background on what I do and have done this uh, on that site. Well, thanks you to all three of you for being so giving for this hour and sharing so much and, and making your uh, contact information available to anyone who might want to get in touch with you. Um, one of the things I, I've, I've learned in doing this podcast is that every show, especially one like this, it makes me a better prison minister. I've learned, I learned more about what the context is and how, how, how people view um, the people who are in my constituency and how to bring out the, the best and, and about empathy. And I think the three of you are just sensational. And thank you for dedicating your, your precious time and, and lies to this because it does take extraordinary people to do that. So I applaud you all and thank you. And I hope you'll stay in touch with one another because it would be great to have been the catalyst for that. <laughs> so Have thank you all. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Beth. Great to meet you guys, Bethany. Great to meet you. You guys are so inspiring. I'm definitely going to be staying in touch. So that's great. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.